On the surface, all can look calm, denying the turbulent truth that lurks beneath. Things seem so good. Every ripple causes pain, division, and distraction, echoing out and churning up the waters of our faith. You'd think we would have figured it out by now. If only I'd spoken louder or taught clear his truth. Would these waves of confusion and doubt have stilled by now? It's all a haze, murky waters, and dimming light. Our divine purpose and mission seem so distant, almost out of reach. Where do we go from here? Yet in spite of the chaos, there's a stillness, a clarity, a beckoning to remember the timeless wisdom and teaching that echoes back to his loving light. Dear Church, We're, we're starting. Okay. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, uh, God loves you. If you if you didn't if you didn't know that, and then um, yeah, I'm uh, uh, God. God sent Jesus to die for you, um, and then uh, I'm sorry. Um, Jesus came to die for you on the cross so that you might have an eternal relationship with Him. Yeah, I mean, what, what if that was it? Like, what if that was the message? No fill-ins, no scripture on the screen, no hilarious illustrations. That was the message. A fumbled and frazzled, simple message from a non-eloquent speaker telling you that God loves you so much that he would send his son to die for you so that you might have a relationship with him. What if? What if actually happened? Paul was the speaker, the Corinthians were the audience, and how did it go? Well, we'll get to that. First, hello to you, Cornwall Church. Hello to everyone here in the room, to those at our Skagit campus, online, and at Gym Church, and welcome to week three of our fall series called Dear Church. Before we go back some 1,700 years, Let's travel back just 24 years. It was the summer of 1999, and there was a brand new show on television. Some called it a phenomenon. Like everyone was watching this new show. It was must-see TV. The show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Everyone was watching Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Regis Philbin was the host, and contestants had a chance to win a million dollars if they could answer 15 questions in progressive difficulty. Now, along the way, to help contestants, there were three lifelines. The first, the 50-50, you take away two of the incorrect answers. Uh, then you had um, Ask the Audience, where they would poll the live studio audience in real time to get their opinion. And then you had Phone a Friend, where you got to call a friend or a family member and have them help you figure out the answer. Well, all summer long, there was no winner. People would get to question 14, $500,000, but they weren't ready or willing to risk for that million-dollar question. That is, until November 19th, 
On that episode, we would meet John Carpenter. He breezed through questions 1 through 14, used no lifelines. And as Regis asked him that million-dollar 15th question, he did something that surprised everyone. He cashed in a lifeline, the phone-a-friend. John would call his dad for help on the final question. And here's how it went. Uh, hi, Dad. Hi. Uh, I don't really need your help, but I just wanted to let you know that I'm going to win the million dollars. Uh, because the U.S. president appeared on Laughing is Richard Nixon. That's my final answer. Well, my gosh. What can I say except, Debbie, you're going to Paris, and this is the final answer heard all around the world. He's won a million dollars. Yeah, John, John won the million dollars. He didn't win a lot of fans that night. His arrogance overshadowed his victory. His knowledge overshadowed his wisdom. You see, while they're similar, knowledge and wisdom are different. They're related. They're kind of like siblings. They, they resemble one another, but when you spend any time with them, you realize they're completely different. By definition, knowledge is facts, information, and skills acquired through experience or education. Wisdom, by definition, is the ability to discern or act using information, experiences, or knowledge for a situation. Like, for example, last month, I got to travel to Oakland. Yeah, Oakland, California. By choice. I wanted to go to Oakland, California to see the Seattle Mariners. Moment of silence. Look up the word silence. Okay, so we went to Oakland to see the Seattle Mariners play on the road because I wanted a victory. And we're down in Oakland. We arrive at our hotel, and I put into my phone, how far are we from the stadium? Well, knowledge informed me that we were just a short mile away from the Oakland Coliseum. Wisdom informed me, dude, you're in Oakland, get an Uber. The difference is clear between knowledge and wisdom. Consider this if then. If knowledge is information, then wisdom is knowledge in action. Let me say it one more time. If knowledge is information, then wisdom is knowledge in action. See, knowledge flows from your head. Wisdom flows from your heart. Knowledge likes to show off. Wisdom points up. Knowledge is acquired. Wisdom is practiced. Knowledge cares about how much you know. Wisdom cares about what you do with what you know. And yes, as Christians, we are called to have knowledge. Paul, we'll find, is not against knowledge. God created you to be inquisitive, to investigate, to better understand him and our faith and our values and our history and the Bible. But if we just collect head knowledge, what good is that? Proverbs 1-7 reminds us, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. You've probably heard it said, before you run, you walk. Before you walk, you crawl. So before you can ex exercise wisdom, you have to attain knowledge 
And to start attaining true knowledge, you've got to have a healthy fear of the Lord. Not like a scared, trembling kind of fear, but a reverent, respectful, understanding fear of who God is. That's the starting line. Because a fear of the Lord leads to knowledge, and that leads to wisdom. And it turns out the lesson that Paul was teaching the Corinthians is the same lesson for us today. It's what we do with our knowledge, and it's important to ensure that our knowledge doesn't get in the way of what God has for us. So as we finish up chapter one, we are reminded that Paul has a bit of a different tone in this letter. It's not that warm and encouraging tone that we read when he writes to the Philippians. Instead, he is blunt. He is bold. He is matter-of-fact and to the point because he's trying to correct some thinking and behavior. And today, as he addresses those claiming to be wise, he will tell them your wisdom is foolish. We pick up in his letter in verse 18. He writes this. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. In other words, to those that are perishing, the unbelievers in Corinth who are living according to their new human wisdom, they have concluded that Paul's message is foolishness. It's unwise. And before we, today's church, throw up our hands in frustration like, oh, what were they thinking? We have to remember this. If you grew up in the church, like you grew up going to church, Sunday school, Awana, youth group, you understand that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Believe in that son and you'll have eternal life with him. We get that. But you don't need me telling you that that is a hard sell to an unbeliever. Now, what is frustrating is that the people of Corinth, they knew better. It's why Paul was so emphatic. Why have you migrated to this new belief of your own wisdom? So in order to help the Corinthians remember the way of what they used to be instead of this faulty, unreliable, human, worldly, earthly wisdom, he goes old school, like Old Testament old school. And he quotes uh, Isaiah here. He says this, For it is written... I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. He makes two promises here. He'll destroy any false human-centered wisdom, and he'll frustrate the intelligent. Now, I think I have a glimpse of what this might feel like. In high school, I was in AP English, no, I'm not bragging. It was my only AP class, okay? But in my AP English class, I thought, I've got this down. I know the material. English was my jam. I had studied. I had prepared. And when the test came and hit my desk, I realized she had changed up the testing style. And what she did while I was confident coming in, she frustrated my intelligence, I mean, luckily, it was just an English exam and not my eternal salvation, but you get the point. God here promises to address those that are relying on the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent. The Israelites had been trusting themselves, and when trouble came, they relied on their own wisdom instead of God's wisdom. Isaiah warns that God will destroy any kind of human worldly wisdom. And if you fast forward, Paul is doing the same thing. 
warning the Corinthians of the same because not initially, not originally, but progressively, those in Corinth began valuing, valuing human wisdom, the world's wisdom, instead of the gospel. Different times, same warning. Worldly wisdom is worthless. Worldly wisdom is worthless. James 3.15 would describe worldly wisdom this way. It's not from heaven, self-centered, unspiritual, and demonic. That's how James would describe worldly wisdom. Worldly wisdom pr promotes uh, self and instant gratification, success, and status. It doesn't care about others. The world tells you it's all about what you can do, not what he has done. The world's wisdom says rely on what you think, not what God thinks. And so Paul here is imploring them, your independent wise thinking is worthless. He continues in verse 20, he writes this, where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where's the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of, of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. So Paul asked three pointed rhetorical questions. Where's the wise person? Where's the teacher? Your version might say, where's the scholar? And where's the philosopher? He's asking the same questions that Isaiah had asked as well. And then he follows it with a statement of fact. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Okay, now to get what Paul's saying here, the NLT gives us a little bit of help. God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish, since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom. You can't outsmart God. He sees, he knows, he knows the angles. He doesn't react, he acts. He acts with authority, he acts with sovereignty. So when Paul says God will make the wisdom of the world look foolish, you can take that to the bank. And he makes it really clear. Should you choose the wisdom of this world, you are not choosing me. And so God makes this offer, this alternative, the gospel, to anyone who would believe, anyone that included those in Corinth and the unbelievers in Corinth. Yes, they were able to know God. First, we know God has made himself known to all people. And second, we know those unbelieving in this moment had learned about Scripture. They knew about God. So what he's saying is, it's not possible for you to know God on your own wisdom. In fact, he makes it personal. He first speaks about the Jews, and he says, I know you have an issue with the message I'm preaching of the cross. You see, they valued signs. They valued uh, miracles. They didn't think the cross was enough evidence for who Jesus said he was. The Gentiles, they weren't so much interested in signs and miracles. They really valued wisdom from revered philosophers. They could not imagine jumping on a religion that proclaimed salvation through the death of one on a Roman cross. And if that man couldn't save himself, how on earth could he save anyone else? And so Paul battles back, simply preaching 
Christ crucified. Simply preaching the cross and the work of the cross, period. This message had to be clear and accepted as is, and it would be a hurdle to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet among this crowd, there were those that believed, and they stood as few. From a majority's point of view, looking at them, they looked foolish. And to them, Paul has a tone change, that tone that we're more accustomed to. And he says this, he opens by saying, brothers and sisters. It's that relational tone Paul has. He says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one can boast before him. He's reminding these Corinthians to remember of their original status. Yeah, there were some prominent Corinthians, but on the whole, they weren't the richest, they weren't the smartest, they didn't have position, they didn't have power, they didn't have money. Reminding them of how they were first called and what they were when they first called, Paul even uses an interesting term for them. Did you catch it? Things. He calls them things. He doesn't do this to belittle them or to insult them, but to indicate to them what they were thought of by the world watching them. Just things. They were such lowly of status. No money, no power. They were just things. They had nothing to boast about. Nothing. And yet, God chose. But then, God chose. It's a powerful statement. Despite, despite how the world saw them, God chose to bring them to himself and to fill this Corinthian church with these people of lower status, to shame the wise, to shame the strong. And to the Corinthians, the unbelieving Corinthians, they couldn't believe this. Because of their messed up misconception of the gospel, they could not believe God would choose to fill the church with these foolish, weak, lowly people. The truth is the underdog was going to prevail. It's why we love the movie Rudy. It's why you wait an hour and 50 minutes for that one moment on the sideline and that one line, all right, kid, go get him. And then he does. He runs onto the field. The world would say he's too small. He's not right for the position. He's too inexperienced. It baffled the unbelievers in the stadium, but they, as you know, were proven wrong. See, God is in the business of meeting people anywhere, anytime, provided they have an open heart to the gospel and a willingness to accept and take on God's wisdom. Now, unfortunately, many of the Corinthians Paul's writing to had forgotten this experience, this life-changing experience, and had migrated to leaning on their own knowledge, their own wisdom, exalting themselves and dividing the church. As we read this letter, I mean, you can't help but feel the tension. I feel for Paul. 
It's as if he's rationalizing with overtired, moody, irrational toddlers. Paul must have been pulling his hair out because his heart for them, he emphatically wants them to see and understand that to be called foolish is to be counted as wise. To be called foolish in this case is to be counted as wise. And note, isn't it interesting that that truth only works in the context of our faith? I mean, a foolish head coach would not appear wise. A a foolish professor would not appear wise. A foolish mechanic, a foolish CPA would not appear wise. And yet, a foolish follower of Christ can only be wise because of their understanding of what it means to be foolish in the eyes of the world. Although the Corinthians appeared to be foolish and weak to the unbelieving world, they knew, they knew. Paul finishes his encouragement this way. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. Pause. Paul loves that statement, in Christ Jesus. He'll use it more than 70 times in his letters. It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Here, Paul reminds them why it is they believed in the gospel. Their salvation was secure in Christ. It wasn't because of who they were or what they had or the position they were. They were enough. They were called. They were in Christ Jesus. They couldn't take any credit whatsoever. It was all God all the time. So the gospel here is completely contrary, always is contrary to the world's wisdom. That was his first point. The second was Take a walk down memory lane, church. Remember where you were. Remember who you were. And what are you doing right now? And third, he reminds his readers that the message he's been preaching has never been about Paul. It's always been about God, God's message, God's gospel. So what do we do with this? I love it when Scripture leads us to a blueprint for life. What we can do starting tomorrow as we go into a brand new week. You see, godly wisdom is not earned, it is given. Godly wisdom can never operate within division. Godly wisdom will always be in opposition to earthly wisdom. And if we understand that knowledge informs wisdom and wisdom is taking action, then we can get going. And I think there are four takeaways Number one, godly wisdom requires humility. Godly wisdom requires a humility on our part. Now, Paul perceived that arrogance and a lack of humility had snuck into the Corinthian church and was ultimately dividing up the church. You see, knowledge on its own can get us into trouble. If you need evidence of that, turn on any cable news network. It's a snowball fight It's a dumpster fire of information being slung back and forth. When's the last time you watched one of those shows and said, hmm, that was a wise point? Knowledge on its own is dangerous, but knowledge informs wisdom. So might we as Christians lead the way wherever we are 
wherever we live, work, and play, as Ron would say, to bring civility and humility. Can we value others? Can we not always have to win? And can we be reminded of how God found us in the condition he found us? And he said, yeah, come on anyway. Godly wisdom reminds us we must remain humble. And Paul got this. His message was never centered around logic, philosophy, knowledge. Instead, in his more than year and a half ministry in Corinth, his message was never his own. He was simple. He was straightforward. He wasn't eloquent. He wasn't manipulative. Why? So that the message would be clear about the cross and the gospel. His confidence came from knowing who he was and what it is he was called to share. Earlier, he asserts that God had sent him to preach everything except words of human wisdom. And Paul was upfront about this lack at times of speaking eloquence. He says this as he kicks off chapter 2. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. He says, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Why? So that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but instead on God's power. Paul consistently kept Jesus at the center of what he taught in Corinth so that others would clearly, easily find and follow Jesus. It's why he explains that he was determined to know nothing except Jesus Christ so that there was no way Paul the man would get the credit. Godly wisdom calls us to remain humble. Charles Spurgeon would say this, Wisdom is the right use of knowledge. To know is not to be wise. Many men know a great deal and are the greater fools for it. There is no fool so great a fool as a knowing fool. But to know how to use knowledge is to have wisdom. Second thing is this. Godly wisdom requires trust. Godly wisdom requires a personal trust. Last year, our family went on a family vacation with Shauna's family. This was like an all-family vacation. And we're on this vacation together. There's four families and tons of kids. And one day, our family and another, uh, my brother and sister-in-law, we decide to go on a, a family excursion. We pick a zip lining tour, and it was a blast. We're zip lining across the tree line from tree to tree to tree to tree. As we get to the last zip, we, I realize we didn't zip to the ground. We're still high in the air. And our guide looks at our group and says, okay, to get down, it's a free fall. Now, if you've been at Cornwall for any amount of time, you know that I'm afraid of snakes, spiders, and heights. And so the idea of a free fall to end this paid excursion seemed ridiculous. But everyone in our group and our families, they were so excited. 
So we all get harnessed up and one by one, my brother-in-law first, my sister-in-law second, niece and nephew, my son, my, everyone is so pumped. They're having a blast. They get harnessed and zoom, straight down. And as the group on the tower, this totally janky tower starts to dwindle, I realize like I'm the second to last one. Oh, I'm it. Now I'm it. This is it. This is it. This is my time to die. Um, and so... <laughs> I look at the guy and I say, can you just one more time, just check everything? And so check the harness. Yep, check. Okay, check the rope. Yep, check. Check the dot rope. Yep, check the harness one more time. And so he's like, are you ready? I'm like, I am ready. Yes. I mean, everyone on the ground is watching. I step to the edge of this tower that's like five stories high. And uh, he's like, okay, on the count of three. I'm like, on the count of three. One, two, three. Totally didn't jump. Totally didn't jump. Everyone on the ground, boo, they're booing me. I'm like, it's okay. I know who I am. It's fine. Why on earth would I tell you a story like that? Because to be totally transparent with you, to say that godly wisdom requires trust, like that preaches really well. That is a most excellent fill-in. But sometimes even pastors are a work in progress. It's easier to preach something than to practice it. So keep that in mind. We too are working on these fill-ins. Godly wisdom requires trust. A trust that requires all of your heart. And here's the thing. For a a, a not yet Christian, the idea of, of having a wisdom that requires trust, like that might sound scary and reckless, And for a new Christian, that might sound possible and interesting. But for a long-time Christian, this should be exciting and uniquely peaceful. Godly wisdom, it invites us to rely on trusting Jesus wholeheartedly, to abandon what the world might think in order to live out Proverbs 3, 5, to trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. The word is all. It's not a percentage. It's an all-in. Godly wisdom requires you to be all-in in trusting him with one more condition. When you ask for that trust, as James 1, 6 says, it says, when you ask, in parentheses, for wisdom, you must believe and not doubt. So if you've gathered the information... If you have the knowledge and it's fueled your godly wisdom, you have no choice but to take action with your whole heart. It's what Cynthia Cavanaugh encouraged you to do a couple of weeks ago. She said, what do you do when you know you should put one foot in front of another? She said, one, do it afraid. Two, do the next right thing. And three, do it right now. And yeah, the world might give you some grief about it, It's okay, let them. To be foolish in the eyes of the world is to be wise in the eyes of God. So let your wisdom fuel your trust. Number three is this. Godly wisdom requires lifelong learning. Godly wisdom requires a lifelong learning attitude. Knowledge, as I said, isn't bad. Paul was for knowledge. It is prudent to gather facts in order to be knowledgeable and to be informed. But knowledge that ends with just a collection, that's a waste. We're called to be lifelong learners. 
lifelong learners understand they don't know it all. You could exhaustively study a subject and never know it completely. Lifelong learners also express a posture of humility. Let me give you a window, a glimpse into your senior pastor. He has the corner office upstairs here at Cornwall Church. And during the week, he has one goal, to present to you clearly on the weekend. How does he do that? If you were to go into his office or be a fly on the wall, you would see Pastor Bob literally surrounded by books and commentaries and past notes. And right there in the middle, his Bible. Why? Because he's a lifelong learner. He wants to know more. Because at his age and stage of ministry life, he is still learning. So here's what's cool. When Pastor Bob gets that excitable look, and you know what I'm talking about, and he says, I just learned this this week. It's not something he says. He learned something new this week. He means it. Or another, you hear us mention her often, Alter Ruth Calkins here at Cornwall Church, 100 years young, still attending Cornwall Church, still selling donuts on the weekend, still attending the Global Leadership Summit at 100 years of age, still learning how to be a better leader. Might that be true of us as Christians in our faith journey? Might we be cautious in thinking, yeah, I got that covered. Check. I've maxed out my knowledge in this area. Might we have a posture of exhaustive lifelong learning so that knowledge fuels our ability to make wise, godly decisions? Finally, fourth, godly wisdom reflects Jesus. How could it not When we reflect Jesus, these are true. We choose God's wisdom over the world's wisdom. We seek God instead of the world's ideas. We seek him and not circumnavigate him. We submit to God's plan versus the world's expectation. We measure success on obedience instead of the corporate ladder. We chase God's ways and not the world's ways. We're willing to be weak when the world says, no, you've got to be strong. We're willing to get the side eye from those that don't understand yet. That's godly wisdom. And when we choose that, we can only reflect Jesus. It's the product of that choice. James 3.17 would say this, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, good fruit, impartial, and sincere. Paul's message to the Corinthians is most definitely a message for us today. And it's a very simple one, a reminder that our human wisdom, as smart as you are, as intelligent as you are, will never support our life in Christ. Intelligence and experience can inform our knowledge. But let's be clear, Jesus didn't say, come to me, all who are intelligent. Come to me, all who have memorized the Bible. God isn't interested totally in how much you know. He's interested in how you use what you know to influence others for the gospel. And like Paul, through a humility that will never, ever be about you. And I don't know about you, but for me, that's a weight lifted. 
I don't have to worry about eloquence or fancy words or hard sells ever. I share Christ plain and simple. We know the gospel. We know the impact of the cross. We know we're loved. We know we're called. We know the implications of salvation. We know Jesus. We know what he's called us to. And we know the expectations of following him. But so did the Corinthians. So today, in your life, in your faith journey, however many times you've rounded the track, here's the challenge. As you consider your journey with Jesus, what is the source of your wisdom? What's the source of your wisdom? And there are a lot of different sources available in this world. But sad to say, the world that God created has grown to become, I would say, quite ugly and a little bit perverse in how it makes us think about wisdom. It is far too easy today to fall victim of following the wisdom of the world. Why? The world is loud and God whispers. The world proclaims and God invites. So this week, today, self-assessment time. Take five minutes in your life, in your journey with Jesus. Where are you at? What is the source of your wisdom? From where? From what? From whom do you glean your wisdom? Charles Fuller would say this, to know the word of God, to live the word of God, to preach the word, to teach the word is the sum of all wisdom.